0: Hey, welcome, everyone, to the, another episode of the CAM podcast. We have Father McCarthy back with us today, and he's going to talk with us about the connection between gospel nonviolence and the Eucharist for this Holy Thursday. So welcome back, Father McCarthy. Charlie. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, better, Charlie. That's it. So uh, I know you've written about this topic before, but I thought you could share with us, um, you know, what these two things have to do with each other. Well, nonviolence in the Eucharist, you know, um, I've written about this since nineteen ninety one it's my writings have been published all over the place and so forth, but they haven't gotten much traction outside of uh, outside of esoteric uh, journals. And well, that's fine. I've sent them out on my emails and that sort of business there. But in my mind, The relationship that I've built or I've seen that I've communicated between gospel nonviolence, gospel nonviolent love, the gospel nonviolent love of Jesus and the Eucharist is the single most important thought that I've had in my life. Um, I don't know where else you're going to go to to think about it, talk about it at this uh, serious level. But uh, it, it is, in my mind, the single most in, important presentation, if you will, verbally or in writing, uh, that I've made um, in my life. Although I've presented all kinds of things um, by the score and perhaps by the thousands, uh, this is this is the one that I I think has the uh, has the most uh, the most power in it to um, to help people in time and and to get into eternity. Um, you know, Ellen, the nonviolent love of Jesus of both friends and enemies in the gospel is historically and spiritually at the heart of his life his message, but also at the heart of his passion and death. It, um, and because it's at the heart of Jesus' life and his teaching and his passion and death, especially his passion and death, it must therefore be something that is communicated as being ineradicably at the heart of the Eucharist, inseparable from the Eucharist. You know, and it's the nonviolent lamb of God who is worshiped and consumed in the Eucharist. It is the nonviolent lamb of God whom the Eucharist empowers us individually in his church to imitate, to receive, to become, and to proclaim. The passion narrative is about the non-violent lamb of God, who is Jesus, who goes to his death rejecting violence, loving enemies, returning good for evil, praying for his persecutors, and yet While doing all this that is so contrary to the way human beings live and act and groups and societies and ethnic groups live and act. Yet, while being so contrary, somehow, this approach to human existence, to doing God's will, to living, conquers evil and death and reigns eternal. That's what we celebrate in the Eucharist. Our lamb is conquered, let us adore him, let us follow him. Just before we receive communion, three times, we say lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world have mercy on us. Three times, and after that, when the priest holds up the the, the consecrated host and he says, behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God is at the heart of the Eucharistic celebration. Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. And then it says, Blessed are those who are called to the Supper of the Lamb. The Supper of the Lamb being the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the Mass, the Divine Liturgy. It is is self-evident, it is obvious, that the Lamb of God is not the Snake of God, or the Rat of God, or the Tiger of God. Who goes to his death on Calvary with bloody flat fangs and claws bad that have tried to tear apart his victimizers, his oppressors, his oppressors, his murderers. The Eucharist is also, just to be clear, it is not about dying of natural causes. Jesus does not die of old age in bed from a respiratory disease. As Bernard Herring, uh, the uh, most prominent moral theologian in the second half of the 20th century in the Catholic Church writes, it is not possible to speak of Christ's sacrifice while ignoring the role of nonviolence. Nonviolence belongs to the mystery of the redeemer and redemption. And so what that means is that if it belongs, if non-violent belo- non-violence belongs to the mystery of the redeemer and in re- in of, of the redeemed in redemption and the redeemer in redemption, non-violence belongs in the Eucharist explicitly. It can't be blotted out. Unfortunately, The sacrifice of Christ on the cross is perceived by so many as being salvation through mere physiological and psychological pain. It is not that. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross is about salvation through the non-violent suffering, non-violent love of Jesus towards all and for all, even lethal enemies. It is about revealing the true nature, if you will, the true nature of the divine, of divine love. It's about revealing the true and authentic face of God. It, Jesus, Jesus indeed suffers, suffers on the cross, suffers pain, humiliation, psychologically, physically. Indeed, he dies of a respiratory disease. He suffocates on the cross. But none of that is what is salvific. It is love that saves. It is love that saves, not mere animal pain. And it is Jesus loving, despite mere animal pain, despite all those who are injury and humiliation and agony and misery on him, loving them. That is the salvage, salvific dynamic in the cross. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, Father forgive them because they know not what they do. He prays for his enemies. He asks for their forgiveness. And he even gives an excuse to God the Father for forgiving them. That is, they know not what they do. When he has a chance to use violence, the only time in the Gospels he has a chance to employ violence, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells Peter, put up his sword. And then he goes over and he heals the ear of the man who's going to take him to his death, his enemy. This is revealing, because Jesus is God incarnate, the word made flesh. This is revealing the true nature of divine love. You know, the Catholic bishops in there Pastoral, The Challenger of Peace in 1983, write this. In all his sufferings, as in all his life and ministry, Jesus refused to defend himself with violence. He endured violence and cruelty so that God's love be fully manifest and the world might be reconciled to the one from whom it had become estranged. Atonement and redemption, sanctification and salvation are the fruits of nonviolent, unconditional love made visible at a terrible cost through Jesus from Gethsemane to Golgotha. It is what Jesus made visible in the Gospels, from Gethsemane to Golgotha and in, in his whole teaching and life, that is, that's made visible at the spiritual apex of his revelatory life, namely in his passion and death. It is this that should be made luminously visible in the representation of his passion and death in every Eucharistic prayer. Unfortunately, that is precisely what is not made visible. One can attend a Mass, a Divine Liturgy, a Lord's Supper, and not even Get a glimpse, not even a hint, that what is being talked about in the Eucharist, what is being talked about at the apex of Christian worship, at the apex of the revelation of Jesus in God, uh, Jesus, of God in his way, in his will, not even get the slightest hint that what he is talking about is a love that is nonviolent towards all people under all circumstances, and that's rooted in the very love that is God who loves all people under all circumstances and lets his reign fall on the just and the unjust. The Eucharist is meant to be, it's the principal means that the church offers to the world for meeting the true God and the truth of God through Jesus Christ, as well as the principal means that the church offers the world for overcoming evil and death at all their manifestations. Why? Because the Eucharist is God's gift of himself through Jesus Christ to his church and through the church to humanity for its liberation from any and all the powers of darkness and as the way of entering into eternal union with the Giver and Sustainer of all life. Ultimately, now, and the, 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 the gift the, the gift that is given in the Eucharist is God Himself, Jesus. To use Schillerbeck, a Catholic theologian's phraseology, Jesus is the sacrament of the human encounter with God. Jesus is this because he is God incarnate. The Eucharist, going to church on Sunday, going to mass, is not another salvation gimmick, another salvation technique. It is relating to a living, acting person, Jesus Christ. Who, of course, who as a person not only has a divine reality, but who was a living, acting person as a human being. You know, the Second Vatican Council in its constitution and divine revelation in section 18, declares the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it names them, to be the principal witnesses of the life and teaching of the incarnate word, our savior. It further states that the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, specifically, have a special preeminence among all the scriptures, even those in the New Testament. And also, that they faithfully hand on what Jesus Christ, while living among people, really did and really taught for their eternal salvation. Of course they are. Of course, that's what the Gospels are. However, the Gospels leave not a scintilla of doubt that certain facts, which some in the church, or perhaps many in the church, maybe most in the church in this day and age, that certain facts, which some would merely consider mundane specifics of Jesus' life. That these facts, which in reality are vital communications for knowing God and knowing the work and the person and the being of Jesus and and, and the will of God, that these mundane specifics just can't be removed from Jesus from his gospel or from his Eucharist, without distorting the gospel, Jesus and the Eucharist, in such a way that the true le- that the true revelation of God through Jesus Christ is impeded significantly. Remove these so-called mundane specifics that do not appear in the Eucharist, in the Eucharistic narrative from Jesus' life. And in fact, there is no Jesus to be known. Remove them from the gospels and there is no Jesus to be known. There is no Jesus who can serve as the sacrament of the human encounter with God without these mundane specifics. You and I, Ellen, are known by our words and deeds. I, like you, are known because I say something, I do something. People have a memory of what I do and what I say. And from these words and deeds, people say, that's elegant, Ellen Finnegan, that's Charlie McCarthy. Many people have the names Ellen Finnegan and Charlie McCarthy, but you and I, as this Ellen Ellen Finnegan, as this Charlie McCarthy, are delineated from the rest of humanity by our words and deeds. Bracketing those words and deeds out of our life, out of our existence, and just the names Ellen, Ellen Finnegan and Charlie McCarthy Basically, there is, uh, there is no Ellen, Ellen Finnegan or Charlie McCarthy without our words and deeds. We are nothing. We don't exist. The bracketing out of segments, especially major themes of Jesus' life, results spiritually in diluting and, in some cases, falsifying the knowledge of God, which is supposed to be revealed through and with him. Diluted encounters with God obviously do not bear the same fruits for the human being or for the the, uh, human community, as do truthful encounters, unmodified, unedited, with God through Jesus of the Gospels. Hence, and this is where we're getting to, Ellen, hence a Eucharistic canon, regardless of the churches, a Eucharistic narrative prayer, regardless of the churches, that is anemic in its remembrance of the mundane specifics of the historical Jesus' passion and death, of the way he suffered and died, and not just of the fact that he suffered and died, must result at best in in an extremely watered-down relationship with the true God and with the truth of God. This is what happens if the too many of the mundane specifics of Jesus' passion and death are left out of the Eucharistic prayer. What happens is it becomes almost impossible to recognize him in the breaking of the bread. And very, very difficult to recognize how the Eucharist is pertinent to the life world in which we live. the Eucharistic canon, a Eucharistic narrative that pushes aside the mundane specifics of Jesus' passion and death, ipso facto eviscerates the power of the Eucharist by not making available to the faithful people who are celebrating it, significant dimensions of the gift of divine love, which is made visible in Jesus' journey from the cynical, the upper room, to Golgotha. Barry Lonnegan, as Jesuit is, was, I guess you'd call him a, a philosopher of consciousness. He has also been called the apostle of the specific. Throughout his writings, he makes the following point, quote, To know the concrete in its concreteness is to know all there is to be known about each thing. To know all there is to be known about each thing is precisely to know being. This may sound a bit esoteric, but what Lonergan is communicating is that human beings encounter the real by the concrete and specific existence in front of them. It is therefore spiritually and theologically impermissible to bypass or to downplay as being of little or no significance, the nonviolent love of friends and enemies that permeates the entire drama of Jesus preaching, passion and death for the salvation of the world. It is sheer spiritual folly to believe that one can minimize the historical humanity of Jesus and thereby arrive at a deeper experience of the Christ of faith the second person the Holy Trinity of God. Nothing in the Eucharistic celebration must allow in the least such a spiritually destructive misinterpretation of the Christian faith and of Christian prayer. The Christ of faith is no different than, or no different from, the Jesus of history. And when we fail to lay out very, very clearly, the mundane specifics of the gospel in the Eucharist, we have what it, what Lonegan says, we have a situation where, quote, Vague verbal claims that help us to ignore the specifics of a particular, uh, the specifics of the particulars in which we are enmeshed serve to assist people in their flight from understanding and commitment. John Paul II in his Ecclesia de Eucharistia writes, the Eucharist is too great a gift to tolerate ambiguity and depreciation, end of quote. But it is not the Eucharistic, but is not the Eucharist pastorally depreciated and rendered precariously ambiguous when the nonviolent love of friends and enemies that Jesus steadfastly adheres to in the Gospels and Gethsemane and the Last Supper and on Golgotha is treated as so minor or to merit even only disregard. No mention at all in the normal Eucharist of the mainline churches. Now what this amounts to is in the mainline churches there is a there is a treacherous discrepancy between word and sacrament but no contradiction can be object can objectively exist <coughs> excuse me between Jesus of the Gospels, who teaches and lives unto death on the cross, the way of nonviolent love of friends and enemies, and the Jesus who is encountered in the Eucharist. If there is an inconsistency, whether it's by omission or whether it's by calculated planning of Eucharistic prayers, Christians are being denied by their pastors what they have a right to. Christians have a baptismal right to worship in the presence of this consistency of word and sacrament and to be straightforwardly appraised of it by their pastors. Words and sacraments, word and sacrament must be conspicuously one in the church. Why? Because word and sacrament. In reality. In God. In Jesus. Are one. So whether a disciple. Looks upon Jesus in the gospel. Or looks upon Jesus in the Eucharist. He or she must see. Indeed. Has an un qualified baptismal right to vividly see the same Jesus. The Jesus, that Jesus in his obedience to the will of the Father teaches by word and by deed a way of nonviolent love of friends and enemies even when he is in direct confrontation with lethal enemy enemies, and murderous violence. We all know how fear or ignorance or arrogance can be the cause of the most precious gifts being rejected or misused. Yes, we likewise are aware that the most benign and salubrious gifts can be misused to the point of becoming agents of destruction. For example, the gift of a beautiful car that is then operated by a driver under the influence of alcohol or drugs becomes an instrument of destruction. What all that I am saying immediately poses are two questions. First, in the firestorm that is presently and has been since recorded history, ravaging the human community with violence and enmity. What pastoral, spiritual, mystical dynamic does the Eucharist intrinsically possess to confront and to conquer this satanic wildfire? Second, what is the proper, most effective way of taking this gift of God, this gift of God himself, this grace, to the world that comes to us through the Eucharist so that it will be divinely efficacious for subduing and binding those diabolical spirits of violence and enmity that cut across cultures and nations and time and space and ravage the world moment to moment. It is not being a lie, an alarmist or a self-righteous prophet or doom to recognize and to call attention to the fact that science, technology, and money today, above all, are at the service of evil, at the service of violence and enmity and hate and greed. Science represents, science and technology represent power over nature. Power over nature can be an an avenue to power over people, since the human being is body as well as spirit. Science and technology can heal or hurt. The arms race, the Second Vatican Council says, is a virulent plague. Uh, the words are gravissimam plagam. That's just a fact. And the arms race is fueled, supported by, made active in the world by millions upon tens upon tens of millions. Of Christians, and it is very, just look around you, look out the window. It is tearing everything apart. So is it possible that in a little piece of consecrated bread that is the body of Christ? In a little cup of sanctified water, wine, that is the blood of Christ, there exists a power, indeed the only power, that is able to extricate Christianity in all humanity from the ever tightening iron grip of the spirit that induced Cain's enmity and destruction of his brother Abel. Our Christian faith answers that question with an emphatic yes. Even in the face of all evidence, including the stranglehold that violence has on technology, on governments, on economies, on media. Faith in Christ firmly proclaims that in the Eucharist abides the power to prevail over the most deeply rooted, most extensively organized, and most highly, manif- highly financed manifestations of evil. The Eucharist has an innate and indelible, temporal and, and eternal solidarity with the nonviolent Jesus. The victim of violence and enmity in his passion and death but also the victor over violence and enmity in his resurrection. Indeed, the Eucharist, among other things, would seem to be purposely created by by Abba, the intelligent designer, to free humanity from the wickedness and snares of that spirit That was behind the destruction of Abel and was equally behind the destruction of Jesus. And it's behind the destruction of every person killed, murdered, torn apart in war, on the gallows, in the womb, from Cain to this hour. But, Ellen, this inherent dimension of the Eucharistic sacrifice must be made visible by the pastoral decision of those who are cho- chosen by Christ to be the overseers, bishops, pastors of the church, of the church's sacramental life. This inherent dimension of the nonviolent Jesus of the gospel responding to evil and to death in all their forms, with a love that is an imitation of Christ like nonviolent love, must be presented and chosen, or else evil perpetuates itself under the name of good and continues to tear apart people. You know, remember 2000 years ago, the human brain, human beings with this kind of brain that we have today, neocortex, etc., they were about 200,000 years old. 200,000 years ago, the human brain possessed because of God's grateful design, intelligent design, everything that was necessary in order to read. However, it was not until a mere 200 years ago, when humanity began to organize itself in a way that made universal universal public education and literacy available, that universal literacy began to take hold across the world. But the gift and the grace of God The capacity to be literate objectively existed hundreds of millennia ago. But until human beings chose to do what was necessary in order to access it, it remained in the realm of almost pure potentiality. Prior to universal public education, releasing this God-given power, only a minuscule number of human beings were able to become what they had the capacity of becoming, literate. So also in the case of the church today, and by extension in humanity today, in relation to the objectively objectively present, but latent power of the Eucharist to conquer violence and enmity, and to release humanity from the diabolical trap of normalized reciprocal destruction of human beings by each other. If the Eucharist is allowed to proclaim the mundane specifics of Jesus' passion and death. A Eucharistic prayer, in the model which I am going to suggest, would be the human decision of the spiritual equivalent of universal public education in the way of Jesus. It would be a manifestation of a gospel-grounded liturgical catechesis that would expand forever not only the Christian, but all humanity's consciousness of the true nature of the true God and hence of the truth of God's way, which is the only way of vanquishing violence and enmity. In the context now of what I have just said and to underline what has been previously stated up to this point, historically, as historically, theologically, liturgically, pastorally, accurate addition to the institution narrative called called in Greek the animesis of the Eucharistic canon could and should read like this, quote. On the night before he went, to his eternally memorable and life-giving death like a lamb led to slaughter, rejecting violence, loving his enemies, praying for his persecutors. He bestowed upon his disciples the gift of a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Then He took bread into his holy hands and looking up to you, almighty Father, he gave thanks, blessed it, broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, take this, all of you, and eat of it. For this is my body, which will be given up for you. Likewise, when the supper was ended, he took the cup. Again, he gave you thanks and praise, gave the cup to his disciples and said, Take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant which will be poured out for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. Do this in memory of me. Obedient therefore to this precept of salvation, we call to mind in reverence Jesus' passion where he lived to the fullest, the precepts which he taught for our sanctification. We remember his sufferings at the hands of a fallen humanity filled with the spirit of violence and enmity. But we remember also that he endured this humiliation with a love free of retaliation, revenge or retribution. We recall his execution on the cross, but we recall also that he died loving his enemies, praying for persecutors, forgiving and superabundantly being merciful for those for whom justice would have demanded justice. Finally, we celebrate the memory of the fruits of his trustful obedience to thy will. Through him, with him, and in him, O God, almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. Amen. This simple, short, incisive addition to any Eucharistic prayer would release power that would dwarf in history the power released by splitting the Adam. The Jesus of history, the Christ of faith, the Jesus of Gethsemane, the Christ of Calvary, the Jesus of the gospel, the only Jesus there ever is, was, or will be, explicitly confronts on Golgotha the diabolical spirits of violence and enmity and all their fury at the very moment of his passion and death. By his words and deeds, during this new Passover event, he teaches humanity how to liberate themselves from evil, while at the same time revealing once and for all the true face of God, a Father who is rich in mercy, but who lets his rain fall on the wicked and the righteous, who lets his sun rise on the good and the evil, who forgives limitlessly and in whom, as the Roman Missal Sacramentary says in the Mass for peace and justice, and in whom violence and cruelty can have no power. The Eucharist is the mind-changing, converting, healing, empowering, life-saving divine gift to humanity, shredded by evil, presenting itself as evil, presenting itself as inevitable, inescapable. Violence and unity. However, the Eucharist can only be this transforming presence if it is made fully visible and available to Christians and through Christians to the world. Made available in the first instance, that is, in a ritual atmosphere that permeates the senses and the consciousness, the wheel in the heart, the soul and the conscience of Christian after Christian, person after person, generation after generation, with the mundane specifics and gospel details of the nonviolent love of friends and enemies on Calvary during the passion and death of Jesus. It is not the liturgical absence of the nonviolent way in which Jesus lives during his passion and death that is the missing piece pastorally in contemporary Eucharistic prayers or anaphras. Is there not a pastor, is, is it not this that's the key that's missing? Is there not a pastoral oversight of gospel and Eucharistic truth there to which the overseers of the divine liturgy should and must respond, that is the bishops? Is not the willingness to overlook self-evident elements of truth in a situation in which we are absorbed in perilous levels situations of violent death. Is it not this overlooking? that is the cause of so much that is so terrible in the church and in the world. Again, Bernard Lonegan, Jesuit, philosopher of consciousness, has shown in his work, the insight is the name of his work, that when human activity settles down into routines of partial, vague and ambiguous truth, unconcerned with the concrete specifics, then quote, the initiative becomes the privilege of violence. Habituation to a patented blind spot results in the tragic, not just for the person, but for the community. John Paul II, again in his encyclical Ecclesia de Eucharistia, says the Eucharist is indelibly marked by the event of the Lord's passion and death, of which it is not only a reminder, but the sacramental re presentation. What is indelible can never be erased, but it can be concealed, can be rendered invisible or ignored, thereby assuring that it will never be stored in the heart or registered in the mind. What people never hear, they can never choose and live. It is just common sense to recognize that the act of remembering requires that an event has already taken place in history before the moment of remembrance. Prior to a person reasonably interpreting an event or deriving meaning from it or determining why it took place, the person must remember it. That is R-E Remember, put it back together. Put back together what took place. The definitive definitive documents that tell humanity what took place from the Last Supper to the crucifixion are unquestionably the Gospels. To remember the Last Supper, which is indelibly marked by his passion and death, is to remember the accounts of these events as recorded in the Gospel. Now, to remember to do something in remembrance of me, to to remember me only as someone who suffered and died, but not to remember me as living away, the way of nonviolent love of friends and enemies, to remember me as, as someone. Who suffered and died, but did not reject violence, did not love his enemies, did not forgive superabundantly, and return good for evil, who did not pray for his persecutors, persecutors. To leave all that out is not to remember me. It is to dismember by omission. The omission of overwhelmingly critical facts, or at best, it is barely to remember. It is reductionism of the Eucharist. It is the narrowing of the remembrance of what took place, which in turn narrows the interpretation of why it took place and how people to respond to it. Pastorally, it should be transparent that a remembrance narrative drained of nearly all the historical particulars and not yield the bountiful spiritual fruits that remembers that a remembrance narrative more generous than the mundane specifics of Jesus' passion and death could render. The altar of Calvary is simultaneously. The altar of agape, Christ-like agape. Unconditional love of all people under all situations. The altar of Calvary is not merely an altar of raw mammalian pain. Identification with Jesus' suffering is always identification with Jesus loving as God loves and as God desires his sons and daughters to love. The kind of love with which Jesus loves throughout his passion and death is not incidental to a truth-filled remembrance, to the proper fulfillment of his Eucharistic precept. Do this. In remembrance of me, Eucharistic reductionism pastorally weakens the revelation to, as well as the call to, the Eucharistic assembly from God through Jesus to become what you behold, worship, and consume. This liturgical reductionism in the Eucharist leads to to a telling, incredible experiential rupture between gospel content and the remembrance narrative. It is as if two sides exist side by side, divested by any demonstrable connection, except for the most attenuated cognitive bridge. Words like suffered or passion or dies for us. The whole way of Jesus suffers and dies in his passion is made all but invisible in one Eucharistic prayer after another. Just that he suffers and dies is all that's visible. The way that he suffers and dies is cut out. This is, a, this is in contradistinction to the gospels, which give a detailed, and absolutely consistent presentation of the way that Jesus confronts evil, death, enmity, and homicidal violence. Why reductionist liturgists? Why bishops? Would consider the way of nonviolent love of friends and enemies that Jesus taught as his way during his passion and death to be unworthy of illumination in the Eucharistic prayer. It's difficult to fathom. Indeed, why reductionist liturgists would not consider this as pastorally. A crucial dimension of all Eucharistic prayers is publishing, uh, just puzzling. Certainly they must be aware that ambiguity in language is resolved in the definitiveness of the human act. What Jesus said and any question about the ambiguity of what it means is resolved by what he did, does. Jesus, Jesus in heaven and on earth is an acting person. It is the acting person that the institutional narrative or its animesis or its remembrance is primarily supposed to present to the Christian and the Christian community. It is the acting Jesus and the mundane specifics of his passion and death who gives flesh and blood and body and soul and divinity to the open-ended words of suffer, died, and passion, which are just wide open and could mean anything. What is not too difficult to understand and to prove is the harmfulness of this pared down, reductionist approach to the institutional narrative animensis, that it's part of all the Christian churches. The harmfulness consists in the danger of secularization. Reduction remembrances, reduction remembrance narratives have shown themselves capable of allowing countless Christians to participate in the Eucharist and thereafter, pledged their allegiance to the führer of the hour, without any uns- uh, without any spiritual uneasiness or qualms of conscience. This is a fact of scandalous proportions. Scandalous proportions that someone could celebrate the Eucharist at 9 a.m. and go out at 11 a.m. to kill his enemies on the other side of a line that has been drawn by the powers of this world. It is a fact that past, this is a fact that pastorally cries out for the elimination, the end, to these reductionist Eucharistic prayers that, that induce amnesia more than remembrance. There is a need that cries out for more full, precise institutional narratives in remembrance in the church. And what is the cost to the church and to humanity yesterday, today, and tomorrow for enshrining the absence of critical memory in the passion and death of Jesus? Is this not, does not history say that this is an ecclesial spiritual problem of the highest order? Human beings, even saints, must consistently struggle against temptations to evade unwanted truths. Is there there not more than ample evidence available to permit with moral certainty the rational deduction that the Christian community, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, Evangelical, whose historical record is entangled and nationalistic and ethnic, enmity and homicide in the extreme, very, very easily not want to honestly and continually hear or face the theological, spiritual, ethical, and cognitive dissonance between its past and present. And what the nonviolent Jesus is in the Eucharist. And so, the Second Vatican Council explicitly said in the document on the sacred liturgy the Council desires that, where necessary, the rites be carefully and thoroughly revised in the light of sound tradition and that they be given new vigor to meet the circumstances and needs of modern times. Certainly. This is this is about more than reading what the council has to say. It's more about is more about having a nonviolent Eucharistic prayer day in and day out, hour in and hour out, from east to west, from north to south in the church, that indeed fits the actual mundane specifics, the details, the gospel details of Jesus' life, death, and way of life and death. And it is about whether they have communion in the hand or on the tongue. All human beings desire to know. No human being is genuinely indifferent to the question of whether what they know is true or not. The object of the desire to know is truth. That is, to know what is, not to be misled by what is not. And so I would suggest that what we see in the mainline churches of Christianity, most of the churches of Christianity, warrants immediate attention in terms of the Eucharistic narrative that it has in its, in its mass, in its divine liturgy, in its Lord's Supper. The generalized terms, reduction, dies, passion, death, have a distinct and definitive definition in relationship to Jesus. Their reduction in the Eucharistic narrative by way of emaciated remembrance to vagueness and zebulousness allows them to be interpreted even directly contrary to the gospel. And allows people in the military, north, south, east, and west, since the time that Constantine first used a Christian symbol to lead people into war, to put crosses, symbols of Golgotha and the Passion of Death and Jesus, on their guns, on their swords, etc. Emaciated remembrance in the Eucharistic narrative and invites false understandings of God, of Jesus, of God's way, of what Jesus calls his disciples to. And just to be clear, as Pope Benedict XVI wrote, contradictory things cannot be the means of salvation. The truth and the lie cannot be ways of salvation in the same sense. Is there not an immense tragedy operating in the forgetfulness, the calculated forgetfulness in the Eucharistic prayer on this critically and historically incontrovertible dimension Jesus' passion and death, that is, his way of nonviolent love of friends and enemies and facing it and entering into it. If in the crowning revelatory moment of the Father's way, as revealed by Jesus in his passion and death, the Father's way is all but hidden Behind a veil of minimalist institution narrative remembrance, what is being done? It is keeping the truth of God in his way out of the consciousness of Christians intentionally. The issue here, by the way, is not Eucharistic validity. That's The Eucharistic validity is fine. But Vatican II says the words suffering and death, they cover validity. But the Second Vatican Council states, when the liturgy is celebrated, more is required than the mere observance of the laws governing validity. End of quote. The issue here is allowing the Eucharist to be a fountain of grace and the empowering source of those copious fruits that humanity, chronically living under the wasteland, in the wasteland of enmity and violence, absolutely requires for its conquering. And so, The way Jesus suffers and dies is as much part of the eternal unchanging essence of his passion and its purpose as the mere fact of his suffering and death. His way is intrinsic to his purpose. and His purpose is intrinsic to his way of suffering and death, his way of nonviolent love of all under all circumstances. And so, the way and the purpose of Jesus suffering and death are historically and objectively, physically and metaphysically, theologically and spiritually forever inseparable from each other. How then can a pastorally integral Eucharistic prayer and remembrance Not honestly and self-evidently include not only mere animal pain of Jesus, but his way and his purpose. And so let me conclude with this. Frederick, Frederick McManus, Rev, uh, Monsignor Frederick McManus, was one of the was one of the um, two most important people in the Second Vatican Council. Uh, one of the two most important people in the Second Vatican Council, who um, who were responsible for the great changes that occurred liturgically, one of the great liturgists of the Catholic Church in the second half of the of the 20th century. When he was presented by me with this idea of the nonviolent Eucharist as being central to the remembrance of Jesus and therefore necessary. In the Eucharistic prayer of the churches, he wrote this, quote, Remembering, this is a Catholic liturgist of the highest rank, quote, The nonviolent Eucharist is a valuable and viable proposal to augment Eucharistic's anaphora or remembrance with some direct reference to the ministry and teaching of Jesus concerning peace and love. With concrete mention of the non-violence of the gospel message. The tradition of variety in Eucharistic prayers. Long standing in the Eastern Church. And happily introduced into the Roman liturgy in light of Vatican II. Mandates to reform the order of the mass is ample reason enough to think through this proposal. The centrality of the mission of peace and nonviolence in the gospel needs to be acknowledged in the confession of the great deeds of God in the Lord Jesus and the Christian people need to see this essential dimension of eucharistic peace the prayer which they confirm and ratify at the conclusion of each eucharistic prayer with the great with their great amen close quotes i think it was Archimedes, who said that there is a point outside the world, and if he could locate it, he could move the world from it. I believe the institution, narrative, of or Eucharistic prayer of the churches, is the spiritual Archimedean point. If the truth of Christ's sacrifice is allowed the fullest of its historical reality, its historical revelatory reality, to be heard. That is, if the Eucharistic narrative actually communicates Jesus' way. Of nonviolent love of friends and enemies. That he lived and lived unto death through which he rose from the dead. This is not magic I speak of here. It is the hidden power of the cross that is released. And those in Christ respond to the offer of grace through Christ crucified, an offer made through unique and unequivocal salvation device. And he said, do this, this, in remembrance of me. If, if, each church's leadership were to authorize, recommended Eucharistic prayer, it would not be magic to change the world. For each Christian, for each church's leadership to explain to the community why the way, as well as the fact of Jesus suffering and death is important for each community to consciously stand or kneel daily, weekly, or monthly in the presence of the nonviolent Eucharistic Lord. Not me, Patrick. From the human eye view, all necessitates human choice. But choices aimed at cooperating more faithfully with the infinitely powerful and mysterious reality of the design, the divine design for salvation in Jesus, choices on behalf of a more authentic expression, an experience, an encounter with the saving presence and way of divine love in Jesus Christ, revealed forever in and through the Eucharistic Christ is not magic. It is the way that Jesus brings to this world both the model and the power to overcome evil and death and all their manifestations. The churches will not allow that way to be seen or heard if they continue who make the Eucharistic prayer an instrument of amnesia in regards to the way of nonviolent love of friends and enemies that is at the heart of the passion and death of Jesus. They are doing a great disservice. To God. And to humanity. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you at the first Eucharist, the Last Supper. It's his new commandment. Commandment, mandatum. It's a mandatum of faith to love for Christians, to love one another as Jesus loves them. And because it is a mandatum of faith, and because it was given at the First Supper of the Lamb, because it was given on the eve in which Jesus was about to go into the atmosphere, into a furnace of violence and enmity and hate and humiliation. And because it is given as what Christians should do in the face of those realities, Jesus' way of nonviolent love of friends and enemies should be a mandatum in all Eucharistic prayers. Thanks again, Charlie. Have a great Easter weekend. And remember, Ellen, above all, this is Passion Week, and the whole focus of Passion Week is Christos teneste, elitos teneste. Christ is risen. He's truly risen. Amen. Till next time.